Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we're starting with a review of Dory Sanders' No-Churn Lemon Ice Cream. It's no-churn. It's lemon. Could Andrea be more excited? We'll find out. We'll also introduce salted caramel and pecan cheesecake pots that you can whip together on a frazzled day and still serve with ease. Finally, we'll explore the history of an iconic chilled dessert, the icebox cake. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, I have been making such amazing progress in my gluten-free, dairy-free dessert baking these days. That is awesome. Was that a 20 for 20 or just a personal resolution for you? Uh, neither. It's just that <laughs> it's just a, happening. A friend, it's happening. <laughs> a friend of mine has a daughter that's gluten-free and dairy-free, and she's mm-hmm. celiac. Mm-hmm. She came home from college because of the isolation situation, and so... I just thought, well, this will be someone that I can bake for and sort of expand my repertoire. Mm -hmm. I started with a recipe that's not even billed as gluten-free, which kind of shocked me. It comes from the Midwest Made Cookbook by Shauna Siever. Oh, yeah. Stefan, I could probably do a whole show on this cookbook. I can't even tell you how much I am loving it. You just sent me a text recently. You're like, I think it was all caps. You're like, you have to get this cookbook. (laughs) I think I did. I think I did. She has a recipe in there for giant peanut butter cookies. And Mm. I thought to myself, oh, this is perfect because I can give some to my husband and then give some to my friend. Well, as I was making them, and you know me, I rarely read a recipe all the way through, I mixed everything up and I was like, wait, where's the flour? And then I looked (laughs) really carefully and I'm like, oh, there is no flour in this. Ah. Now, there was butter in the recipe, but I mm-hmm. used those mm-hmm. vegan butter sticks from Earth Balance instead yeah. to make it dairy-free. Of course, you need to follow the instructions because without any flour, these cookies are very fragile when they come out of the oven. So oh, okay. I find that I pull them out of the oven and I let them sit on the sheets for about another 30 minutes before I even try and move them. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's quite a long time. They're so good. They're so good. (laughs) That was my first exploration. I think I've made those five or six times. Oh, delish. Now, the other cookbook that I had talked about back in October when we talked about new releases we were looking forward to was Weeknight Baking. Yeah, that's right. She has a wonderful fruit crisp in there. Now, Midwest Made, I mentioned, did not list that it was gluten-free, but I figured it out. Mm -hmm. Whereas weeknight baking, every recipe, she says, whether it's vegan, whether it's gluten-free, whether it's dairy-free. So that's very helpful. It is nice. Yeah. And this particular one was not listed as gluten-free, but the main ingredient in the topping on the fruit was the oatmeal crumble. Mm -hmm. And I have gluten-free oats. So I made it gluten-free. Okay, great. And she did list it as dairy-free because instead of butter, she uses olive oil in her crumble. Got it. With all the fresh fruit right now in the summer, you know, I just love, I did a mixture of, I think, strawberries and raspberries and blueberries and blackberries. I don't know. I just piled in everything that was in my fridge. Oh, triple, quadruple berry. Oh, it was so good. And then with that oatmeal crisp on top, oh, mm, mm. 
Yeah. So anyway. Sounds so nice. Mm. I wish we lived a little closer. (laughs) Very proud of myself with my explorations. And what I especially love about this, I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again, is when I'm giving food to people who aren't gluten-free and dairy-free and they have no idea and they're just like, oh my gosh, this is so good. This is the best peanut butter cookie I've ever had or something along those lines. Yep. Yep. Because you don't need to say anything and it's just a win no matter what. Yes. Yeah. I love that too. Well, if you aren't tempted by Andrea's Fruit Crisp or Giant Peanut Butter Cookies, if that is not enough, July 15th, just two short days from when this episode drops, it's National Tapioca Pudding Day, Andrea. And (laughs) (laughs) last week we talked about it being National Ice Cream Month plus National Ice Cream Day, now National Tapioca Pudding Day. I am uh, amused by the food holidays this month. They're really pulling out all the stops for July, aren't they? And I love, dearly love tapioca pudding. You know, when I think about it, at first blush, I think, oh, that's kind of a cozy, warm dessert. But of course, you can and often do serve a tapioca pudding well chilled, so it makes it perfect for our month here. If you are looking for a great recipe, I still regularly make, and we both really loved, the coconut tapioca pudding with the mango lime sauce that we did back in episode 72, Andrea. Yes, and I'm the same as you. At first blush, I think tapioca pudding, warm, fall. But then I remember, Mm -hmm. no, that dish is served chilled. And it's so perfect with the mango and the lime on top. It's really a perfect summer dessert. Very nice and light. Really pretty too. Yeah, I love it. Stefan, it's time for one of our monthly pantry purge tips. And so this was one of our 20 for 20 resolutions that we were going to continue to purge our pantry. Yes. What I thought we could discuss this month is that now that we are a few months past where most people were forced into their homes for a long period of isolation, I'm guessing that some of us bought a little bit more than we needed. Mm. I'm wondering if there are maybe some expired things that are in your pantry or some items that you won't use that you can donate. Yes. I also thought I would share my COVID confession, which is (laughs) the food that I overbought. Could we please have some theme music for COVID confessions? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you know, I was out of town when Washington State started shutting down. And so it was really kind of bizarre hearing about it from afar and, you know, panicking in part because it was happening, but also in large part because I could do nothing. There was nothing I could do. I just had to count on my husband and daughter to handle it on their own, which, of course, they're fully capable of doing so. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't sure if they understood how important my morning oatmeal was to me. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Yes. I love, love, love the steel cut oats. And it's been only recently that I discovered the quick cooking steel cut oats because Mm -hmm. that's been my only downside on steel cut oats is they take 20 or 30 minutes to make. But the quick cooking ones tastes, you know, five to seven minutes. So I bought, I think um, I had my husband buy maybe four bags of those. I'm not sure. Here we are in the middle of July, and I'm here to tell you I'm only through about one and a half bags. So okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to be looking for some recipes that perhaps use the steel cut oats. Listeners, if you've got any for me, let me know. Mm, I've got one. Oh, you do? I've got one. My soda bread that I make on the regular uses, I think, half to three-quarter cup of steel-cut oats. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yes, I will send that to you. I think, gosh, I can't even remember where it's from anymore. I've been making it so long. Maybe cooking light, but it's not very light. It's one of those that you wouldn't know it was necessarily a light recipe. 
Yeah, we'll post it in the show notes and then I'll also send it to you. But um, one of the reasons I really like it is because it has that chewy, you know, and if you're not familiar with steel cut oats, they look, they're also called pinhead oats. They look not flattened like a rolled oat, right? which has literally mm-hmm. been flattened in the machine. They're very kernely looking almost. And they just have a nice yes. nutty texture. They have a nice chew. Yeah, that's one reason I love that soda bread. But I will be happy to send that to you and your steel cut oat bonanza. <laughs> Very excited. Very excited. Thank you. And just to wrap that up to you, folks, if you are cleaning out your pantry or you were fortunate enough to be able to overbuy during that period, remember that food banks are especially and desperately in need of your donations. So if things are still fresh, still have not expired, then please consider making a donation to a food bank near you. Yes, please do. Or a little free pantry. Andrea, we are up in our second week of Chilled Out Month with a review of the no-churn fresh lemon ice cream with candied sesame seeds from none other than the glorious Parade magazine and (laughs) Dory Sanders herself. This was a reprint from Food 52's cookbook called Genius Desserts. We loved this for so many reasons going in. It was lemon. It was no-churn. And then it had this really fun kind of candied sesame seed brittle as well. Making this was so easy. So You just start off by whisking together your cup of sugar, your tablespoon of lemon zest, your quarter cup of fresh lemon juice, and your eighth a teaspoon of salt. Listeners who've been with us for a while, you know that I have a massive bonanza of frozen lemon juice in my freezer Mm -hmm. from when my mother-in-law sent me, I don't know, a bushel of lemons from her tree in Arizona. Yes. Unfortunately, I forgot to defrost those right before I went to make this dessert. Mm. I had some lemons on hand as well, and I just wanted to bring that up to tell you that for me, a quarter cup was two whole lemons. But of course, that's going to depend on the size of your lemons and how juicy they are. Yeah. I also already had my lemon zest frozen. So back when I got that bushel of lemons, my husband helped me squeeze all the juice and we zested a good half of them. So I didn't have to zest my fresh lemon, but I did have to juice it. Is that when you squozed your lemons, Andrea? (laughs) Perhaps. There was some squozing taking place. Okay. Very good. Now the next instruction is where I do want to say I was a little curious on whether or not this would work. You whisk together your cup of heavy cream and your cup of milk And then you gradually pour it into the sugar mixture, Mm -hmm. whisking constantly. And then it says whisk until sugar dissolves. Mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, how is this going to dissolve? There's no heat. I'm just, you know, mixing this sugar with this cream mixture. Mm -hmm. But I have to say it took me about two minutes and I thought it dissolved pretty well. How about you? Yeah. And actually it reminded me of making lemonade. Yes. And in that case, I always... The acid just goes to work on the sugar and does that. So I was less hesitant about... Okay. It dissolving, which, as you said, it did beautifully. I was more concerned about the curdling happening because it's such an amount Mm. of lemon juice into that cream and that milk. But, of course, I took a little taste. (laughs) It didn't taste curdled at all. So whatever is happening there, you don't need Mm -hmm. to worry about that. You pour that mixture into your 8-inch square metal baking pan, cover it tightly with foil. I then froze mine for three hours. Mm -hmm. It says, until the mixture is solid around the edges and mushy in the middle, And sure enough, that's what I had after three hours. It says to stir it well, cover it, and freeze it for another one to two hours. But of course, I had a few bites right then. Checking that texture. (laughs) Yeah, that's when I started realizing this might be my new favorite ice cream. Mm. But I did go ahead and freeze it another two hours until completely firm. So I had five hours total. 
I did not serve it in a chilled bowl as advised, <laughs> but I do think that's a <laughs> charming, a really nice suggestion. Very charming. But I did serve it with the candied sesame seeds. And of course, I made those at the same time that I originally put the lemon together. I took my nice wide saucepan and I decided to cut the sesame seed recipe in half, not because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to eat it all, but because of the price of sesame seeds. My goodness. Oh. I don't know about you, Stefan, but my container of black sesame seeds, the regular uh -huh. spice-sized, you know, grocery store container was $9. What's going on? I know. I'm going to have to be reverse exporting sesame <laughs> seeds to you. They were not that expensive at all here. I don't even remember, but they were just like a normal spice amount. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. So the, the black ones were nine. The white ones were five or six. Okay. The whole reason I was using both black and white was because I had some black left over from back when we had made our black sesame seed cookies in June. But it turned out I didn't have enough for the full recipe amount. So I ended up buying more anyway. Anyway, mm -hmm. that's why I cut my ingredients in half. So I used a quarter cup of sugar, a quarter cup of water, and then I used a half a cup of sesame seeds, a quarter cup of white, and a quarter cup of black. And you stir those into the sugar-water mixture and cook it for five to ten minutes until the water evaporates. I found that this took seven minutes, and the time between the seven minutes when the water evaporated and the, I don't know, 7.20 seconds <laughs> when I was pouring it onto my baking sheet my husband was like i smell something burning i smell something burning oh. it just shocks me even though i warned listeners about it last week mm -hmm. how quickly if you've got high heat and sugar sugar boy things just really move very quickly from mm -hmm. golden brown and done to burning <laughs> how, how about you how did your candied sesame seeds turn out yeah, let me talk about those and then I'll go back to the ice cream because I really did feel like this was the best and worst of both worlds. The sesame seeds did not work for me ultimately. Oh no. Unlike you though, I could not get mine to turn golden brown. The water had definitely evaporated at nine minutes and I was stirring it constantly. They were, I guess, dry and powdery, although I'm not exactly sure what that's supposed to mean, but there was no more water left to evaporate. They were, yes, barely golden, absolutely. I poured them onto my parchment-lined baking sheet and spread them out evenly. I would just like to have a cautionary tale here that this is hot, and it stays hot for a really <laughs> long time. <laughs> so don't try to go in with your fingers and like smooth it out because <laughs> no, you will regret that. It never really hardened, so I guess I probably didn't boil it long enough or hard enough, but again, it was... I had nothing left to evaporate, and it was definitely golden. So by those metrics, I thought I was done. Was it popping? That's a good question. Uh, I don't remember a sound, so I guess I'll <laughs> say no. <laughs> okay, because I often toast my own sesame seeds, mm -hmm. and that's how I always know they're done is when they start to pop. Mm -hmm. Same thing. The reason I pulled mine at the seven-minute point as opposed to the eight or the nine or the ten was it started popping. And I thought, oh, I know for sure that's like the sign when I'm regularly doing sesame seeds. They're done and they're going to start burning if I keep cooking. Interesting. Well, I ultimately don't think you needed those candied sesame seeds because the ice cream was so darn delicious. Yes. I loved it. Andrea, I fear... Or I shouldn't say I fear. <laughs> I wonder if there's a little change of personality going on. If you might remember during Japanese Sweets Month, I went rogue with the parchment paper molds. That's right. 
<laughs> I went rogue with the lemon ice cream. So <laughs> by next thing I know, you're going to be just waiting until the day before <laughs> we talk on the phone to make your recipe or, you know, eating it at breakfast as we're on the phone. I'm going to be like not measuring vanilla extract, you know, it's going to be <laughs> here's what I did. And I had a good reason. I do not have an eight inch square metal baking pan. Oh, the closest I had was a metal cake pan and it wasn't mm-hmm. big enough and I churned my ice cream. Oh, okay. I'm okay with that. Okay, thank you. It worked brilliantly, so I can tell you that if you just don't want to wait quite as long, if you do have an ice cream maker, want to throw it in there, it churned for about 25 minutes. I then stuck it in the freezer. Mm, I really wanted to taste it, but I let it sit for two hours. It was soft, as we talked about before. Sometimes it takes a little longer on that initial freezing. Mm-hmm. My, oh my, yum, yum, yummo, so great. This is super, super great in a cone. It was so zesty. It was so vibrant. I adored it. Heavy rotation, new favorite. I'm going to be making it all summer long. Yeah, I feel the same way. Now, it's funny you're mentioning the lemon flavor. Both my husband and myself made the comment that the lemon was not overwhelming. And that's a good thing. You don't want it to be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too acidy or something, right? Yeah. But since I've only made this once, I did think to myself, oh, maybe I'll try and bump up the lemon just a little bit. Of course, I know I need to be careful because, you know, that will also maybe affect the freezing point of the ice cream. But Mm, good point. I did think that it was just absolutely delicious and the acidity of the lemon was balanced off by the sweetness of the Mm. sugar Mm -hmm. and the heavy cream. Now, I love the candied sesame seeds, and I think I also really enjoyed the fact that the black ones sort of jump out at you when you put them on top of the lemon ice cream, whereas I think if you just had white ones, you might not even see them. So for a visual interest, I love them, but I also just, I really love a crunch with my ice cream, Mm -hmm. and I just love the flavor of sesame with lemon. So Mm -hmm. this hit all of our pleasure points here in our household. We agreed that this one is definitely going into the heavy rotation as well. So thank you, Dory Sanders. And the no-churn fresh lemon ice cream with candied sesame seeds was absolutely amazing. Loved it. Well, Stefan, let's see if next week's recipe is going to be as big of a hit. It is the salted caramel and pecan cheesecake pots from Olive Magazine. Stefan, we have baked from Olive Magazine a couple of times before. You might recall most recently we did the chocolate chai kefir cake. Yep, right. And then we also did the chocolate bobka buns. Yes, our bake-along together in London. That was so fun. This particular recipe grabbed me for a reason that I've said before. It's one of those recipes where every word in the title makes me go, ooh, yum. (laughs) I was just going to say that, yes. Well, and I'm now realizing every time I say that, the words salted caramel are usually two of the words in the recipe. So there is a theme. There is. (laughs) There is a trend. It's true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I did want to go through the ingredients because, of course, I do have some questions. This is a UK recipe. Mm -hmm. And the very first item on there, it calls for hobnob biscuits. Now, that is a cookie that I have been able in the past to get at the Cost Plus World Market. But if I'm not able to get my hands on it, remind me, what does it taste like and what should I substitute? Yes. So the hobnob is a digestive. It falls into that category. And this one in particular is really oaty and kind of rough. Often they'll have a coating of chocolate. Mm -hmm. 
and they are almost always in my cupboard here. I dearly love them. My husband dearly loves them. They're so easy to find their way into the cart. If you couldn't find it, I think you would want maybe a crisper oatmeal cookie. Okay. It doesn't specify if you want them coated in chocolate or not. I'll tell you right now, I'm going to go with the chocolate, but... Because why not? <laughs> but you wouldn't have to. But yeah, something kind of crispy and crunchy. Okay. But with texture. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what I would substitute. But Andrea, even before I moved to London, I saw them even in stores like Fred Meyer. Oh, okay. Good to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So right. if you're just doing a regular shop, you might check in the international foods aisle, as I think lots of U.S. stores are stocking them more regularly. Well, and you don't need a lot. It's only calling for six of these. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you can get your hands on some. Right. You'll also need a tablespoon of melted butter, 30 grams of toasted and chopped pecans, and then you also want a few extra to decorate the top of your cheesecake pots. Nice. Some mascarpone. Is it cheese or do you just say some mascarpone? <laughs> yeah, right. Is cheese redundant? I don't mm. know. But that's what uh, it is. A 250-gram tub of the mascarpone. Yep. Okay, the next ingredient is 150 milliliters of double cream. Stefan, I am very excited to report to you that one of my regular grocery stores is now stocking double cream. It's so exciting. Yes. Oh my gosh. That is so exciting. It's in a tiny little glass jar. Uh, I haven't purchased it yet, but I am going to get it if I can get my hands on it and use it for this recipe. So I think that'll be really fun. If you can't get your hands on double cream, what would you suggest? I would do a heavy whipping cream. Okay. Yes. Next is three tablespoons of icing sugar or confectioner sugar, as I like to think of it. So good. That's right. Then you've got one zested and juiced lemon. And your final ingredient is four tablespoons of salted caramel. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that means a liquid salted caramel. (laughs) Yeah, or like an ice cream topping. Okay. Like that, like a hot fudge sauce. That's what I think. Here I can get it in a can. It's just called canned caramel. But yeah, or you could obviously make that yourself if you wanted to. But one of the great joys of this recipe when I'm looking at it is it's entirely assembled from ready-to-go ingredients. Yes, which in the summer when you're in a hurry, when it's hot, I think this is what you want. You could certainly make your mascarpone yourself. Sure. You could perhaps even make your own homemade hobnob biscuits or your own salted caramel, but you don't have to. Andrea, I love the steps here. So as we just said, it is really an assembly job. You're going to crush up those hobnobs or your cookies of choice, mix in the butter, and stir in the pecans. In a separate bowl, you're going to beat your cheese with the double cream, icing sugar, lemon zest, and juice. Oh, what a delightful sentence this is. Then you're going to ripple through the caramel. Oh, I want to ripple through the caramel of anything I make. (laughs) It might be a delightful sentence, but I need to make sure I understand. Is it saying that you're going to like drizzle the caramel through the cream cheese mixture? Yeah, that's what I would say. Okay, Mm -hmm. okay, got it, got it. Kind of like with some layering effect going on there. Yes, okay. And then step three, you are dividing the mixtures between four small glasses in alternating layers, finishing with the cream on top, and then, then you add your few more chopped pecans. I love all the flavors. I love the textures going on. You've got the kind of crunchy, you've got the smooth, you've got the salted caramel. Mm. Also, Andrea, oh my gosh, I literally just put it together. This is like a mini cheesecake like you were just talking about last episode. Yes, (laughs) indeed it is. (laughs) Another reason you picked it. Now, Stefan, it doesn't say that you need to chill these after you assemble them, but 
Mm. I'm wondering if that would be okay because it makes four, and if I'm serving it to other people, I'd like to make them ahead of time. What do you think? I think so. Maybe you just wouldn't put on the chopped nuts until right before you served it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why not? Yeah, especially if they're not going to be in there very long. But having this even more cold than all of the ingredients already were, I think would be excellent. Me too. Well, remember, listeners, we will have a link to this recipe in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 185, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Andrea, it seems perfect that in a month dedicated to chilling out, we would need to feature a dessert that gets its name from the actual chilling appliance. Of course, we are talking about the iconic icebox cake. Stefan, when we first started the show back in 2016, my mother-in-law suggested we do a segment about icebox cakes. I'm happy to say that here we are following up a mere four years later. (laughs) Thank you for being patient. (laughs) But really, icebox cake hasn't been a total stranger on Preheated before this. In fact, in episode 83, we featured a strawberry icebox cake from Faith Durand. Oh, yes. That was such a wonderful way to feature those first strawberries of summer. And Stefan, we briefly mentioned the icebox cake during our Roaring Twenties month in May of this year as we discussed how new appliances like the refrigerator began to change the way we baked, or in this case, chilled, at home. That's right. But today we're going to talk about how it all started with the actual icebox. The icebox, or cold closet, as it was sometimes called, was a non-mechanical way of chilling and preserving food. But this technology started long before it showed up in American homes in the 19th century. In fact, it can be traced all the way back to 1775 BC in Sumeria, where the king began constructing an elaborate ice house with a sophisticated drainage system and shallow ice pools. In the U.S., prior to electric refrigeration, many families had ice houses built on banks of rivers. In fact, Andrea, I recall an especially harrowing episode of the TV show Little House on the Prairie where a schoolchild was locked inside an ice house. (laughs) That Nellie. Nellie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now I knew that iceboxes had been around for a while since I often run into them when I'm thrifting in antique stores. But I had no idea the concept went back nearly 2,000 years. Over time, the construction of these ice houses paved the way for their smaller counterpart, the ice box, to come into existence. And of course, this was especially handy for people in the South who couldn't build ice houses. Ice boxes began to get really popular from the mid-1850s through the 1930s, when the electric refrigerator arrived. Until that time, ice boxes were often called refrigerators. It wasn't until the invention of the modern-day refrigerator that we started calling them ice boxes. Before that, the two terms were used interchangeably. So we didn't jump straight from 1775 BC ice houses to 1930s refrigerators. No, in between the icebox ruled the day. In 1802, an American farmer and cabinet maker named Thomas Moore invented the icebox. He used it to transport butter he was selling to the markets. And because of his icebox, he was able to sell firm brick-shaped butter instead of the soft melted butter in tubs like his competitors. His device had a cedar tub lined with a tin container with ice in between the two. And he wrapped all of it in rabbit fur for insulation. How chic. Later versions of the icebox included more sophisticated drainage systems and used other materials for insulation, such as sawdust, cork, or seaweed. But it was a lot of work to keep your icebox, well, 
icy. To keep the food cold, the ice had to be replaced as it melted. Luckily, for a few decades, ice men driving horse-drawn carts delivered ice directly to your home. You kept a card in your window indicating how much you wanted, and even if you weren't home, they would fill the ice cooler on your porch. Once ice manufacturing became more widespread, ice boxes were touted as a convenience no home should be without. And as they found their way into homes and became more widely used, recipes were developed that required refrigeration. According to Greg Patent, author of Baking in America, Great Recipes from America's Past and Present, the first recipe for an icebox cake was published in Everybody's Cookbook by Isabel Eli Lord in 1924. Oh, Stefan, a couple of months ago, listener Jesse posted a photo of a vintage Frigidaire cookbook from the 1930s in our Facebook listener group. Yes. Hey, Jesse, if you're listening, let us know if there are any icebox cake recipes in there. We'd love to know the ingredients and the method. In the meantime, there's no lack of icebox cake recipes. These iconic desserts have stood the test of time, proving to be beautiful and tasty no-bake favorites during the summer. The dish typically includes alternating layers of a starch and a sweet cream and are refrigerated for several hours to set and soften the starch layer a bit. The cookies absorb moisture from the cream layer, which makes them denser and more cake-like. They are often decorated with a fruit topping before serving. And I love icebox cakes because they can be as difficult or as easy as you want them to be. For example, if you want one that's assembly only, you can certainly use store-bought graham crackers, ladyfingers, or cookies for your starch layer, or leftover cake to take it more into trifle territory. Then you can use vanilla pudding, whipped cream, or Cool Whip for your sweet layer, or you can make all or some of the components from scratch. My favorite icebox cake comes from Lena Abraham over at delish.com. She beats three cups of heavy cream with half a cup of powdered sugar and one teaspoon of vanilla until the stiff peak stage. Then she layers the whipped cream alternately with chocolate wafers, eight layers high in total, and refrigerates it at least four hours or overnight. I just love the thinness of her layers. It reminds me of a dobage cake, one of my favorite New Orleans cakes, but it's so Mm. much easier. Andrea, it reminds me of one of the recipes I've turned up in my back-of-the-box research, recipes printed on food packaging. The famous icebox cake is on the Nabisco chocolate wafer box and has been since the 1940s. Nabisco didn't invent the icebox cake, but they certainly made it famous. One of my all-time favorite icebox cakes may not be an icebox cake at all, at least in name. It's banana pudding. I think it counts because the concept is exactly the same. You layer Nilla wafers with pudding, bananas, and whipped cream. And my favorite recipe comes from one of my all-time favorite cookbooks, Are You Hungry Tonight? Elvis's Favorite Recipes by Brenda Arlene Butler. (laughs) It's a classic for a reason, just like the king himself. And it sounds like I've got a new cookbook to flip through next time I'm at your house. How have I missed this on previous visits, Stefan? (laughs) Hard to know. Listeners, we'd love to hear about your favorite icebox cake or similar dessert. Drop us an email at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or post a message in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning and next week we'll see if salted caramel and pecan cheesecake pots taste just as good as they sound. Then we'll introduce an American summertime classic, the grasshopper pie and take a look at the very best temperatures for our ingredients when we're baking. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Stefan, here's a great new review we got on Apple Podcasts. It comes from a listener in Canada, and they said, very entertaining. I love the format of this podcast. Andrea and Stefan start off every episode with an invitation to the listeners to pour themselves a coffee or to put the kettle on and to sit back and listen to banter about baking. The ladies are warm and engaging, and it feels like I'm being welcomed into their homes. Every week, they pick a recipe that they will both bake in the upcoming week. It's shared on their website so listeners can bake along if they wish. The following week, Andrea and Stefan talk about how the bake went, share any trials and tribulations they had, and whether they like the outcome. It is obvious that they are great friends with a mutual love of baking. They are not professionally trained pastry chefs, (laughs) so the discussions are not overly technical. Rather, the tone is lighthearted and fun. Every episode always brings a smile and a giggle. Thank you, Andrea and Stefan, a devoted fan. I just love that review so much. I do too. And it's just always warms my heart. I can't say it enough. I just get such a boost every time we read a new review. It's, It's amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Yes, we get a personal boost and our show gets a boost. Every time we get a review, our listener numbers go up. So listeners... That was a lovely review I just read, but you're also welcome to do a one or two sentence review. That counts as well. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. And Stefan, do you recall that we told listeners how to make their own mascarpone, didn't we, in one of our mini segments during the sweet and sour month? Mm-mm. Okay, well, we'll just cut that. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <clears throat> it's hard to say icebox cakes. Yes. <laughs>